So are you happy, I ask? Maybe the, if nothing else from church today, you'll probably remember that. Sorry. What makes you happy, I guess maybe is a better question. Now, a lot of answers could come if we were to take the time and go around the room and say, what makes you happy? Um, well, it'd be, it'd be interesting to hear. We're told in our world, and I said this a few weeks ago, uh, that's one of the most important questions that our world is constantly throwing at us, is, are you happy? And if you're, and, and on the other side of that, we have a culture that seems to increasingly be trying to convince us we're not happy because we don't have fill in the blank. We look around, and, and there's always that, that thing that we're told or dangled in front of us. In fact, in a couple weeks, there'll be this little football game you may have heard about called the Super Bowl. And we usually, when I watch football, I record the games and start about 30 or 45 minutes in, so I don't have to watch commercials. But I can't do that for the Super Bowl, because on that day, the other members of my family are interested, maybe not so much in the game, as they are in the commercials. You figure you pay several million dollars for a 30-second spot, and some of the best ad work of the year comes out. But really, when you reduce it down, it's always aimed at trying to create in us that sense of a little bit of discontentment so that we'll go out and look at that next thing, that new item, that latest and greatest piece of technology, that if you have this, then you'll finally be happy. But in some, way, in some ways, I think many of us have really forgotten what makes us happy. We've lived our lives, we've pursued so much that really in, in our life, we, we don't know what makes us happy because we've bought a little bit into that lie of our culture that this next thing will finally be it. If you get it, you'll be happy. But what I've found, and maybe you have too, is that all of those things that they market to us, they usually breed in us, they're like made to make us discontent. For instance, I didn't bring it up here. I have over there what at one time was the latest and greatest cell phone technology courtesy of Cupertino, California where I could take my thumb or any finger that I choose and put it on this little circle, and it would recognize who I am and magically open the world of the technological marvel that was the iPhone to me. You may. How many of you have iPhones? Just curious. Okay. How many of you have the iPhone 6S or 6S Plus? Okay, so you see what happened? Guess what? In about nine months, the iPhone 6S or 6S Plus will be obsolete. Not really. It'll still work great. It'll do all the things it can do, but there will be another iPhone. There will be one with a little bit better technology. Maybe the processor will be a little faster. The graphics will be neater. I guess the big thing now is that 3D touch. Technology. Yeah, I can tell you're excited. They worked hard on that out in Cupertino, I'm sure. I'm 
get that. I've got to have that. Mine doesn't have three details. Mine has two details. I don't know what that means either. But apparently it's important. In fact, if you have a 6S, you can touch it, and depending on how hard, this is what it means, how hard you touch it, things happen, right, Bethany? Yeah, exactly. Somebody's excited over there. Things, the pictures can, when you take a photograph, it's like Harry Potter. They move. Isn't that exciting? Call the video. Yes and no. And, and so we, we think, oh, we need it. And then the, the ads will come out and, and we'll, we'll be convinced. And that's just one product. There are all sorts of things. How many of you, we bought a new car not so long ago. We were very excited. Got a new car. We actually did it not so much for, um, like, for, I guess it was very utilitarian in our, in our purchase. We looked at things like, um, you know, gas mileage and, and, uh, bottom line cost and that sort of thing, which is probably important all along, but sometimes in life, those aren't the way they're marketed all the time. And, and you know what, how'd you buy this new car? I actually bought like a new car, but it was the last year's model, and now they're they're out there, they're pimping the, the newest, latest, and there's these design changes. Have you ever done that? You go out and buy a new car, and the next year they change the car, so your car looks like an old car, even though it's a new car? Anyone? Don't you hate that? Why do they do that? So that you'll want the next thing. In fact, as we pursue happiness through these ways, through through thinking that the latest and greatest and newest and the best, this will finally scratch the itch that will make me not itch anymore. Actually, it just opens up our way of thinking, our way of life to realizing not what will make me happy, but it's what's next that's going to make me happy. And there's always something that's coming next, right? Because, you know, if we could sell you a phone that you'll never have to buy another phone again, we could sell you a car that'll never break down, you'll never need another car again, what happens to all these companies, right? And so they have crafted and they spend millions of dollars marketing that message. And so when we buy into that, we actually forget what truly makes us happy. And if I had to, to say what that is, I think I'm asking the wrong question. Because I don't think it's what that can ever make us happy. I mean, if you think about your life, if you think about the moments in your life, maybe when you were most happy, you'll probably not tie it to a what, but to a who. If we boil it down, it's not the what's in life that make us happy, it's the who in life that make us happy. And we see this. Some of you have gone with us and other churches on mission trips. And a lot of times when we take these mission trips, we go to some pretty impoverished parts of the world. And one of the things that people say when they go on these mission trips and they come back and they see these people that are living in conditions that we wouldn't even imagine, we couldn't imagine putting ourselves through. When they're, when they're, uh, when we went to Uruguay several years ago, we were in a very poor uh, neighborhood or barrio in that part of Montevideo, the capital city. And these houses that the people were living in were, were very basic. Um, you know, sometimes just lean-tos, if nothing else, uh, tin sides or cardboard was a popular building material because it was other people's trash. And this, this neighborhood was built on top of a trash dump. So that was a product that was able to be found. And so they would build their houses. We went in our summer, because it's South America, it happens to be their winter, and it was terribly cold. And I couldn't imagine these folks 
going into these houses at night. I mean, it was, what, 48, 49 here last night. Um, my wife and I had this argument. She wanted the windows open. Exactly. Of course she wanted. I mean, what, what kind of question is that? Yes. The win- And I said, okay, here, this is the room where I will go in the morning first thing. So can we close that window? She said, yes. Beautiful thing. But, you know, nonetheless, in fact, I think that the, if when I go home a little bit later, I'm sure all the windows will be open again. I, I was up in Leesburg this week, and my brother went to my aunt's house, and it was 30-something that morning. I woke up in Leesburg on Tuesday, and he went into her house, and he said, Sis, your house, your, your thermostat said it's 59 in your house. Turn on the heat. And I came home, and I told Denise, Denise, my brother was arguing with my aunt when it was this cold in her house that she needed heat, and you've got the windows open. The windows are still open. Nonetheless, we have these experiences where we go to places like that, and I think, what's it like to live in a piece of cardboard, a cardboard house, maybe with tin? How cold would that be? We had worship service, and the pews in this church, it was a concrete block building, um, and no insulation, just concrete blocks, and I don't believe it had doors or whatever. It might have had some windows, but no doors, so there was a, a nice breeze that blew through. It was very airy say in modern architectural terms, and we sat on uh, basically two-by-sixes on some other concrete blocks. Those were our pews, and we Florida people were cold. There was no heat in this building, and uh, not even the preacher was hellfire and brimstone, so no heat coming from the pulpit even. It just wasn't one of those places, and and you, you go there, and these people that, you know, they don't have the sound system, they don't have the projection, they don't have the added seats or the, we don't have heat in here, but if we were in a cold climate, we would, most churches would, and they are as joyful as any congregation as you could imagine, singing songs of praise and sitting there and and enjoying the experience of worship, and we think, how could these people who have so little seem so content and happy? It's as if we think they just don't know any better, when in reality, when we look in the mirror, maybe it's we who have forgotten some of the very things that we used to know about what indeed makes us happy. Because I would suggest to you, as I've already said, it's not the what, it's the who's. And here's another way I would think that we would be reminded of that. When people come to the end of their life on earth, they don't have possessional regrets. Like you don't go to the hospital and have a lady say, you know what? I just need you to bring my red shoes. I need a few minutes with my shoes. I need to apologize that I didn't wear them often enough. And that a couple of times I mismatched them with an outfit. They need to know I feel sorry for that. You don't have a gentleman say, hey, could you wheel me out? I need to have a moment with my car. I need to apologize to my car because I never waxed it enough. And I feel bad. That's not what happens, is it? No, when we get to those moments... It's usually relational things that come to the forefront. We look for those people maybe that the relationship has been a little strained and we want to have that time of making closure, peace in in things as as we enter into those critical moments of our life. We know that that in those moments things are defined so clearly that the most important issues of life aren't the what, it's the who's. And so... 
when somebody says about somebody else, you know what, nothing makes them happy, there may be no truer words that have ever been spoken. They're about this close to the truth, and that close is the space that needs to go between the O and the T in that word nothing. Because it's not nothing makes us happy, but it's no thing will ever make us happy. We're thinking about the people that we know of that are probably the most content, the most happy that we know. I would suggest there is a quality that you see in them, something that you would notice, whether that comes to the front of your mind or not. And even as you think about some of those people, you may recognize it in them as we talk about it today. Because I think the, the quality that would best define those who seem most happy and content or joyful or whatever word you want to use in that context in life would be people who are at peace. They're at peace sort of with, we might say, themselves. They're kind of comfortable in their own skin. They, they live their life without a lot of regrets and without a sense of needing to exact some vengeance for some difficulty. And I'm saying this not because their circumstances have always been perfect, not because they've never had trouble or or never lacked for anything. It can actually be quite the opposite. But they are at peace with themselves and the life that they live. They're at peace also probably with others. They, They let things just sort of go. They're not holding a grudge. They're not bitter toward somebody. I mean, if you heard about the situation, you might be bitter toward the person that did them wrong, and you might want to, on behalf of this person, go out and do something to to avenge what's gone wrong, but they don't seem to carry that around. They seem to have forgiven and are at ease with that. And and I think the other relationship we might say they're at peace with is they seem to be at peace with God. That there's not a sense that God has abandoned them or forgotten them, no matter, again, what the circumstances may suggest to us as the outsiders looking in, but but they have a sense that God has heard and God has listened and God has been there. And God will even right the wrongs that they may have in their life. They would probably be that kind of people, people that we would say live at peace. Jesus was asked an interesting question in Matthew chapter 22. And I think we're going to find his answer might line up with some of the things we've just talked about. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 35, Scripture records an encounter Jesus has. Jesus has lots of encounters, and Jesus is asked lots of questions. Sometimes Jesus is asked, like, questions to trap him, questions hoping he'll say the wrong thing and they can get him, because there are a lot of people that didn't like Jesus. There are a lot of people that didn't like his popularity or the influence he seemed to be gaining, or the following of people that were turning from him and turning to him. There were lots of people that wanted to trap him, make him look bad, and somehow put him on the outs with the people that were flocking to him. But in this case, this isn't the kind of question we see. We see in this encounter, in Matthew 22, an honest question, a good question. I really want to know what the answer to this question is. And one of the reasons I think that's the case is because of who is asking the question, verse 35, tells us that it's an expert in the law who comes to Jesus and has a question for him. Now, 
maybe we'd say in our world a lawyer, but in that day the law was rather particular. It focused on the Old Testament law, the Torah, the 613 commandments that made up for a good Jewish person the, the observances of their life. And so an expert in the law would be someone who had studied it, who had from early days of his life memorized it and tried to live by it, and comes to Jesus probably with more of an honest question, more of a question of where are you coming from sort of a thing than I'm trying to trip you up in this one. And so verse 35 tells us that, that that this expert in the law comes. And in verse 36, here's his question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? It's a tough question. It's a big question. I just told you 613 particular commandments in the law. That's a lot to pick from. Which one's the most important? I mean, if I were to ask you today, let's just take the Ten Commandments. Because, you know, we kind of learned those from an early age. Let's just think about that ten, that particular list that was set apart and we have memorized maybe or been taught from the time we were kids. What about the Ten Commandments? What would be the most important of the Ten Commandments? That might be a tough question. Obviously, they're commandments for a reason. They're commandments because God understands that living by these laws or these commandments will be beneficial to your life. For instance, every Thursday I do chapel with the with the preschoolers here at our, our daycare. And we have a lot of fun. We sing some songs. But, but one of the themes that always comes up, most of the time I'll say, maybe not always, but a lot of times comes up is this idea of the commandments of God. And, you know, when I talk to the kids, I usually talk about some of the ones like, do not lie. And I'll even ask them, how many of you have ever told a lie? So let's just play that game here. How many of you have ever told a lie? If your hand's not up, you're lying now. Yeah. And, of course, they all know. Even three-year-olds understand. I'll ask them, you know, there's that thou shalt not steal thing. I'll ask them, how many of you have ever taken something that's not yours? And a lot of them will admit they haven't. My favorite one to use with the preschoolers is honor your father and mother. How many of you have not listened to mommy or daddy when they've told you to do something? Yeah. We all get that. And those are pretty important things. And we haven't even hit on things like thou shalt not kill. That's pretty major. That's one that, that without question most of us would want to avoid as much as we could. We wouldn't even want to be in a position where the situation was so dangerous that that would even be something we'd consider, much less uh, taking actions that would lead to that anyway. That's that's a pretty big one. But how do you deal? That's just 10. How do you deal with 613 of do this and don't do that? Sacrifice this way, not this way. Conduct yourself this way, but not this way. Worship this way, but not this way. And on and on the details would go. And so that would be a pretty important question. What's the most important one, obviously? What's the greatest? What's the number one commandment? And Jesus answers in the next verse this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Interesting command, isn't it? And when we think about commandments, we usually go to the thou shalt 
and the thou shalt not, right? I mean, okay, that's King James. Which church world people like me that grew up in it know that kind of language. If you're not a church world person, maybe thou shalt and thou shalt not, that's not the way we speak. But it's do this and don't do that. That's what we think commandments are about. In fact, as I described a minute ago, that's kind of how I laid it out. These are the things we should do. These are the things we shouldn't do. These are the things we should do. These are the things we shouldn't do. When we think about commandments, we often think that's how the language should sound. This actually doesn't sound like that. Now, I could parse it and say, well, it is an imperative of command, the, the word love as a verb, if you want to do the, the linguistic gymnastics with it, which is also something I enjoy doing. But so in that sense, it is a command because that's how the, the tense or the mood of the, of the word is written. But it's not the kind of thing we typically think of as a commandment. Most commands wouldn't start, okay, little Johnny, love. No, we usually start with, okay, little Johnny, you shouldn't, or you should. Jesus starts with love. What is love? Love is a relational word, isn't it? As he thought about the 613 commandments, and as he wanted to identify the greatest of all 613, he went straight to the who's, the relationship aspect. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But he didn't stop there. He went on. And then the next verse says, and the second greatest, so you just asked me for the greatest, I'm going to give you the second greatest, is like it, is similar to it, is is related closely to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he sums it up by saying, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor, and if I can parse it a little bit more, love yourself. might be indicating the way to contentment, the way to joy, the way to happiness is getting your relationships right. It's about the who, not the what. I don't know if a lot of people think of God that way or think of Jesus that way, that somehow Jesus would come and say something like that. Like, if you want to be content, if you want to live life to the full, if you want to have the most amazing life you can have, because he said that's what he came. He came to give life and life abundantly, that you need to worry about how you relate to God, to others, and even to a degree, you got to love yourself. You know, I can't love you as I love myself if I don't really like myself that much, right? And if I don't like myself and I love you like that, that's not good for you. True? But anyway, that's another story for another day. Jesus is saying, here is what is at the top of the food chain commandment-wise. These are the things that you should be doing, the things that, the way you should be acting that will bring you the greatest benefit, the greatest result, the greatest, dare I say, happiness to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with others. Interesting that he would go there. Why would that be? I mean, like I said, a lot of people wouldn't think that. A lot of people would think, The commandments of God are actually what are standing between me and happiness. Like, if I could do what I really wanted to do, I might do some of the very things that God tells me I ought not to do. 
mean, I would say that's probably the case because I read the newspaper and watch the news reports from time to time. A lot of people, I mean, I don't think people take things that aren't theirs, let's put it in three-year-old language, because they think that won't make them happy. I don't think a lot of people go out and become addicted to substances because they think that's ultimately going to make them miserable. At some point, they probably did those things because they thought, if I do this, if I act this way, somehow I'm going to be happy. And time and time and time again, it doesn't work that way, which brings us to a wonderful little word. Okay, maybe not wonderful, but a key little word. It's a little three-letter word. And it's the word sin. We talk about sin sometimes in church. We talk about it in different ways. Usually it's in connection with commandments, right? Here are the commandments, and if you don't do them, you have sinned. I'm kind of contractually obligated to say it that way. So it sounds foreboding. Sin. You can't say sin. That's not good. You know, you got to make it sound serious. Sin. Sin is bad. In fact, a lot of church experiences we've all been in have talked a lot about how bad sin is. And you should avoid sin. And if you do the things that God tells you to do, then you won't sin. And if you don't do the things God tells you not to do, then you also won't sin. And if you don't sin, that's good. That's kind of a lot of church world in a nutshell. But even in that, I think we miss what we've started with and what we've been kind of camping out on a little bit all along, and that's the relationship aspect that is more important than anything. What does sin do? Well, it does a lot of things, but the way I was taught, and maybe you were too, and one of the simplest ways that was explained to me, sin separates us. We can even say that. Sin separates us from God. And that's true. God is holy and righteous and just and all of the things that, that He reveals about Himself. And so our sin, being the opposite of God's character, creates a separation between us. And that, I agree, is true. But, you know, sin would also separate you from other people. In fact, at a basic level, when we make choices that are sinful, the result will be some degree of separation from God and or others. John 6.23. No, is that right? 3.23 says, yeah, 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And that's another way that, that was, the word separation was used to define death is separation. I, I, I can talk about that. People that I love that have died, I'm separated from them, whether it's my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, others in my family, friends that, that I've lost. We're separated. We know that that's kind of a, a fixed gap. We can't cross. Sin separates. But there's an interesting verse. There's a lot of interesting verses about sin, but one that I want to talk about next is in the book of James, James chapter 1, because this makes things maybe a little more connected to how we've been thinking about what it means to be happy and what it means to be at peace and what it means to live in right relationship with God and others. Because, see, sin is always making us a promise that if we do this, we'll be happier. And sin is always failing to deliver on that promise. Oh, 
maybe it seems to work out at first. Like we did this thing. We took something that wasn't ours. We used that example. And it seemed to be okay because we were happy because now we had this thing that we didn't have. But then a day or two later, we run into the person whose thing that was that we took it from, and they seem sad because this thing that we took now, they're missing, and they're wondering, where did I put this thing? And now all the happiness that came at first from that doing something I shouldn't have, from taking something that wasn't mine, it begins to drain a little, doesn't it? Now we're a little nervous. We're like, okay, how do we answer them in a way that they don't realize I'm the one that took the thing? I've got I to watch my words here. What if they ask me pointed questions like, where were you on the night of the 25th? What if they just come out and say that and have the bright light in my face? Then what do I do? What if, it's, what if they ask me to take a polygraph? Now what? Then the, the immediate pleasure that came from doing that thing that we call sin now is beginning to seep away. And sin always makes that promise but fails to deliver. James chapter 1 Verse 15, James writes this interesting way to look at sin. I think it's going to be up on the screen if all goes well. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, the imagery there is of a baby. Aren't babies cute? Yes, Lindsay, babies are cute. Some babies are incredibly cute. More cuter than all but one other baby that's ever been born. Did I get that right? I tried to throw Nathan in there here. Babies are amazing. I love babies. I love holding them. And, and they're so cute and cuddly. And, and even their cry is kind of cute. And even parents are excited when babies mess their diapers. Even that's cute to me, parents. It's just weird how babies are just, like, there's so much. It's a, and and I, this, this is the picture James is painting. And we can see this happening Say, oh, this is just a little baby sin. It's just a cute little sin. Oh, it's a cute little sin. What happens when sin grows up? Teenage sin. Ooh. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere, right? That little cute little baby's now teenager. Saying things like, oh, mom, come on. Right? This is not so cute anymore. Yes? Yeah, and then, and then it's and it's an adult, adult sin. <laughs> whatever, yes, whatever is a favorite word of those teenagers. Whatever, full gr- you know that, that cute little bit. What's what's so bad about this? It's just that awful little thing. All of that eventually grows up, and it grows up and gives birth to full grown sin. The result is death. The result is separation, and, and sin, death always follows sin. And that death may not mean like physical death, although certainly that was in mind in the beginning, but relationships die all the time because of sin. Because somebody sinned against the other person, did something wrong, whether it's a major betrayal or whether it seemed like, in hindsight, maybe a minor thing. But but when there's conflict in relationship, what's at issue is probably one person thinks the other person did something wrong toward them. And the relationship suffers. And the person that, and actually a lot of times conflict 
one person thinks the other person did something wrong, and the other person also thinks the first person did something wrong, and they go through their whole life thinking each other have done each other wrong. That always works out well, right? Sin, ugly little word. I mean, cute little baby, but it always grows up. And when it grows up, the consequences are magnified. The consequences become obvious. And sin brings about destruction, separation in relationships. Yeah, it might tell you that little lie. It might tell you, hey, here it is. But, it, but it's always trying to tell you that lie because it wants to substitute something that's not real for something that matters. It substitutes things like pleasure for fulfillment. There's a big difference between those two, isn't there? It substitutes immediacy for intimacy. It substitutes an experience for exclusivity. It substitutes images for intimacy. And we could go on and on and on. Sin is always trying to make that substitution seem worthwhile. And when we buy it, like you've bought by eating the apple, we're never quite ready for the size of the consequences when it grows up to be what it can be. Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? His answer, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if this was what's in mind behind the question, but if we were to rephrase the question in light of what we've kind of started today, we might say, if someone asked Jesus, what will make me happy? I would think his answer wouldn't be that much different. He might phrase it a little differently. Because, you know, when you ask him a commandment, he's got to go to this law that they all knew. But when you ask him that question, he might say something like, well, what makes you happy is to live in right relationship with God and others and yourself. To not have those things between you and somebody else, you and God, that sours the relationship, that separates, and that ultimately moves you away from what is best for you. And baby sin grows up. It's an interesting way to consider life. An interesting way, I think, to consider what it means to be, if I can use the word, a Christian. And I know that word has a lot of meaning. We've talked in other weeks about that word in particular, Christian. It's the word in our culture that probably most means a religious person. I don't know if it means the same thing today that it once meant. In fact, one of my pet peeves is I don't ever want to be called spiritual. It's a word I know. But a lot of this is actually the kind of the momentum word. People want to be spiritual in our world. And I always ask the question, which spirits you going for? Because there is the Holy Spirit of God, and there are a myriad of demonic spirits. And you can be spiritual on either side of the equation, right? I want to be a word I like, godly, Christ-like, a follower of Jesus, one who follows the model he set. Though I can never attain to it, because he was the only one who lived life sinlessly. He was the only 
one that could have possibly done what he did. But he is my example. And he showed me when he lived how to live at peace with God. What did he say in John? You know, I, I just do what I see the Father doing. Father's always showing me what he's up to, and I just get after that same business. Lived at peace, lived at peace with others. And boy, were there a lot of people that wanted to take him down. When I say lived at peace, they were, were listening to him. So I don't know if you know, but at the end of his life, they tried to kill him. He lived at such peace with others. Okay, you got me. If that's what you mean by peace, we always get along. But I hope we've redefined that idea today to say, he never did anything that we could call sin that would cause that separation between him and me. Rather, they had their own agendas often, as we see sometimes in Scripture. Jesus demonstrated that kind of life. Do you think Jesus was happy? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, by our standards, he would answer that question in a way that our culture might say no, because what did he say? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We've talked about that before. We've talked about this before. When Jesus needed to pay his taxes, what did he do? Don't you wish it was that easy? Wouldn't it be awesome, like April 14th? Hey, let's go fishing, guys! And every fish had some money in its mouth. That'd be interesting. doesn't work that way. Jesus lived it. And he could, in the end, even when we get to that episode that, that is the crucifixion, is his death and resurrection, we see even in that his purposefulness. He set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. So that the reality of our sin that which separates us from God ultimately, but also from others, could be taken care of if we but trust in Him and ask Him for forgiveness. I think if you looked over your life, you could probably look back and find some places, find some decisions that you made that in hindsight you realized undermined your own happiness. When you, when you looked at the circumstance that you ended up in, you say, you know, that was miserable. There are times in my life when I can look back and go, yeah, but sort of my fault. Because I made these choices, I made these decisions. And it's good to know that through Jesus, God stepped in and did something about it. And through these verses that we've looked at, he said to us, hey, I know what is the key to you living a life of happiness, contentment, joy. And if, if that's true, if, if when we look at him, maybe we don't see the typical religious answer that many religions in history have tried to paint, but a relational answer. And if he demonstrated by his own life a contented, happy, peaceful, joyous life, and if we admit that sin is the one that's always substituting something less appealing, doesn't it make sense that maybe we should try to follow this Jesus? Doesn't it make sense that he might be on to something? 
revolutionary for a church to say Jesus is on the throne. Doesn't it seem given that plethora of commands to choose from, when Jesus narrowed it down to this, he said, hey, listen, 613 is a big number. I got two for you. Do these and everything else can hang off of them. Seems to me like that would be worth Father, I thank you that through Jesus you have given us the example of a life lived before you. A life lived in perfect obedience to you and to your law. A life lived at peace with you. A life that pleased you. Lord, I I thank you as well that through him you've given us insight into that which can allow us to live that same kind of life. That we can love you with all our heart, soul, and mind. And we can love others as we love ourselves. And find the key that will make it possible to live the kind of life you desire. Lord, today I imagine there may be some people here that, as we've talked about the things we've talked about, have difficulty in relationship, have lost something, that sin has in fact separated them from family or friends, has cost them something in in relationship. And ultimately in relationship with you. And I, I pray that today, Lord, we've been reminded that you stepped in to pay the price so that if we but trust in you, that you will forgive the sin separates us from you and others and work in our lives giving us the hope of eternity. Lord, today if there's someone here who needs to take that step toward you and acknowledge their need for your forgiveness, I pray that they would do that even now. Lord, for, for those of us that have already made that decision, have already turned to you in faith, Lord, I pray we've been reminded Convicted, if needed, of the the places and the things we've pursued to find happiness that weren't in you and peace with you. Forgiving us even if that thing was religion rather than relationship. So Lord, we ask that in these moments of response, that you would turn our hearts back toward who you are and what you've done. And remind us of the great gift of life Thank you.